Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Surviving Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader-funded with a sliding-scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Uh, welcome to the Institute of Race Relations at 50 panel, New Circuits of Anti-Racism. Thank you to TWT for hosting. It's amazing to see how the conversation around race has developed since TWT started. In the opening years, race was very much relegated to a kind of secondary phenomenon that uh, attendees would talk about. And now I've already seen such rich conversations happening, not only on panels, but between people. So I'd like to congratulate TWT on making that change. I'm Kay Biswas, I'm a writer and critic. I'm the director of Resonance FM and the editor of Representology, which is the journal for media and diversity. 2022 marks 50 years since the Institute of Race Relations underwent a radical transformation steered by the late A. Sivanandan, uh, the Sri Lankan-born thinker who passed away in 2018. Over the past half century, the IRR and its wonderful journal Race and Class have been at the forefront of the public conversation around race in Britain not only in terms of analysing structural and institutional racism, but also formulating practical ways of resistance. So I'm delighted to be joined by a wonderful panel. Next to me I have Liz Fiquette, the Director of the Institute of Race Relations and author of Europe's Fault Lines, Racism and the Rise of the Right, which is out in Verso. Sophia Siddiqui, the Deputy Editor of the journal Race and Class and Coordinator of IRR News, and Chantelle Lewis, the host of the podcast Surviving Society and the Deputy Director of Leading Roots. So Liz, can I start with you? Could you give us an overview of the nodes of anti-racism, not only in Britain, but in a wider global context? <coughs> Thank you very much, Biz. Um, I just wanted to say, to start with, uh, the IRR is 50 years old, but I haven't been there half a century. Um, but I have been there 40 years. And when I was preparing for this panel, one of the things that struck me is that everything that we were seeing in the 1980s in terms of the level of organisation that we had in the 1980s, with police monitoring groups all around the country, with anti-immigration organisations fighting to support people. Everything is coming back, but this time it's going to come back bigger and better and stronger. I'm really confident of that. And the other thing, just to answer, before I answer Biz's question, I don't know how many of you were in the last forum, 
I know Chantelle was because she was on the platform for that one and she's very tired because she's got to do two in a row. <laughs> but if you were at the last um, session when we were talking about police in schools and we were talking about abolitionism being an imaginative project to imagine a future where the police weren't there, where social problems were dealt with as social problems and that we could imagine a world where law and order and policing weren't the solutions to uh, social problems. And I just wanted to say in relation to that, that it's not so hard to imagine a future without policing schools. Because when I was a young activist in Hackney in 1981, we were campaigning to stop the police coming into schools. And there were no police in schools at that time. And the NUT and everyone were behind us at that point. So we don't have to imagine a future, we can also imagine a time in the past. Nodes of anti-racism. I think one thing that is clear, that anti-racism has to be based on a political culture of solidarity, where people come together to fight common problems in an organised way. Now, Asfar and Ilias have written a brilliant book that looks at the whole ways, but in the 1990s and the early 2000s, that culture of solidarity, that political culture we had in the 1980s was broken down. Thatcher was very good at that, but there were other things too. There was a sense of, I think, too much individualism entered our movements as well. Perhaps that's sort of social media, and oh, no, I'm old, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay. Chantelle will let me have But I think we've also had such clear examples, and we're not here to talk about the Labour Party today. This session isn't to talk about the Labour Party, but we've seen all the political parties instrumentalise anti-racism for their own purposes, and actually deliberately play to communal voting. And that has been a real problem for us in these wilderness years. But as I said, those people were never interested in transforming the world. At best, they would give you management strategies around diversity and representation. But the kind of transformative anti-racist, anti-imperialist politics that did pertain in the 1990s is coming back, as I've said. And within that, when we're talking about nodes, Abolitionism is clearly a crucial node in the new circuits of anti-racism. It's the way we all recognise the fellow a traveller in the fight against racism and penal populism. Because as I said, it's the whole penal populism, the way that people... Oh, we're not talking about the Labour Party. Well, let's say that <laughs> the leaders of certain parties act as though they were a cop and a prosecutor and not the leader of a party bringing transformative change. So it's the way we recognise a fellow traveller, and one thing that has struck me since the Child Q case, and also the Chris Carbu case, is how our campaigns are now becoming national campaigns. Sivananda used to say we have to turn uh, cases into issues, issues into causes, causes into national campaigns. And that is what we're happening today. Jengba was always a national campaign. From the moment Jengba started, those women who started Jengba were always a national campaign. So policing prisons, criminal justice are all key at nodes. But there is another vital node in anti-racism that has been obscured in what I would call the wilderness years. And that is racism is always about exploitation. 
and the race class fight of migrant and low paid workers is another key note, with the networks forming around immigration injustice also linked to abolitionism, opposing immigration raids and forming a protective ring around communities. That's why in our anti-racism we do need to unite with trades unions which place themselves on the side of migrant workers. But we also need to criticise other trade unions that have not come to first base in recognising the dangers of working class nativism. Racism is always about the violence of the state, so state racism is another critical node for us to fight around. So refugees fleeing to occupation, dictatorship and today's race war resource wars are at the front line of resistance. And I think what we're seeing at European borders today is a visceral demonstration of a civilizational racism of Europe. When we're seeing, as our colleagues in Poland say, who work at both the border with Ukraine and the border with Belarus, it's like there are two different countries in one, two totally different set of rules, people whose lives are worth saving and those who can die in the forest. So radical anti-racism has always been linked to internationalism. It's always had international struggles at its core against fascism, against colonialism, against imperialism. Recall the struggles around Vietnam and South Africa, but also Algeria, Chile, Bolivia, Grenada, Palestine, Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, and the great thinkers who emerged out of that struggle, some of which at race and class we've been privileged to work with, Sivanand and, of course, um, Walter Rodney, Cedric Robinson, Angela Davis, names that spring to mind. At our IRL 50 conference at King's on October the 15th, which you hope you'll be able to come to, we are trying to get it live streamed as well, I'm not quite sure where we're at, on, on that at the moment. We're going to have a, a session on radical internationalism and global shifts in the world order, exploring the new fascisms and the interlocking na nature of nationalism and imperialism. But in lines with the tradition of race and class, we are not going to do this in a Eurocentric, Atlantis way that I fear that much of the left follows. We are not going to disappear the global south from the discussion around imperialism. You don't fight one imperialism with another form of imperialism. Only supporting all the, by supporting all the people of the world who have experienced invasion, who are living under occupation, only then can we part, be part of a tradition of radical internationalism. And that, in an earlier period, drew inspiration from the non-aligned movement of countries, some of which we might consider being reflected by the African Union's recent statement at the UN, that Africa has suffered enough of a burden of history and does not want to be the breeding ground for a new Cold War. Just to conclude, today I see the growth of new organisational structures as kind of justice oases, in the arid desert of structural violence and injustice. It's wonderful to be my age, not a bit over a century, quite a bit over it. Oh no, God, what did I say? A bit over <laughs> half a century. Where's my walking stick and similar brain? Uh, it's wonderful.
wonderful to be my age, to have lived through one era of struggle, to have survived so many years in the desert and feel hope coming back. I'm very privileged to be able to discuss these things with these wonderful young activists and researchers here who are now providing the words and tools for us to go forward. And that's why sharing my discussions with them, spending time with them, makes me confident that this time we will do it better because we are connecting bigger. We are connecting across struggles, particularly around issues to do with white supremacy, patriarchy, LBT, LGBTQ rights, particularly transgender rights. All of this makes it essential that we develop a political culture that respects our differences while building unity in action. Did that answer you? Yes, it did. Thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I want to link what Liz ended on uh, and ask Sophia um, a bit about the importance of coalition struggles and that overlap between feminism, queer rights, and anti racism. Yeah, answer that. That was a tough act to follow. Um, but yeah, I wanted to follow what Liz has said, particularly around the need for internationalism and broad solidarity across communities, and to use my time today to reflect on the need for anti-racism, to connect to feminism and queer activism in order to build our collective power. And the reason why I feel this is so urgent right now is because of what's going on around the world at a global level. At a time of increased authoritarianism, the far right is combining racism, with attacks on reproductive rights and the demonization of anyone who does not subscribe to the heteronormative nuclear family. And this has resulted in a normalization of transphobia, racism, sexism, and homophobia. So now more than ever, we need to be building alliances between community organizing because our liberation is bound to one another's and our movements can't afford to be fragmented. And I've written about this in our journal, Race and Class, in an article on reproductive racism where I've highlighted the underlying racism behind attacks on reproductive rights, looking particularly at family policies of the right, which are often driven by fears of a demographic takeover, but also how increasingly queer communities, and especially trans people, are also being presented as threats to the nation. This has resulted in a rising tide of homophobia and transphobia across Europe. We've seen neo-Nazis marching through Spanish neighborhoods, during pride events, expressing contempt for migrants and LGBT people. And a couple of weeks ago, a trans man died following a brutal attack at a pride event in Germany after defending a group of women who were being harassed by homophobic threats. And here in the UK, we've seen drag queen story hours being targeted by far-right protesters across the country. And because attacks on reproductive rights, on LGBT rights, and the rights of migrants and refugees are increasingly linked, our solidarity must be broad and transnational. Far-right groups often borrow from each other. They copy each other's tactics. Therefore, what happens elsewhere, whether in Europe or the US, often has an impact here. And in these really urgent times, now more than ever, we need an inter intersectionality of struggles at an international level. And if that, this task is daunting, that's when reflecting on past struggles of solidarity can be really uplifting and empowering. And today's panel is called New Circuits of Anti-Racism, but I also think it's incredibly important to connect to old circuits as well. 
And for me, the black feminism movement in Britain offers many such examples and show how activists have long been fighting simultaneously against racism and sexism in this country. And one of the most horrific historical cases is the conduct of virginity testing by immigration officials on South Asian women that took place in the 1970s. Under immigration laws, women did not need a visa to join their fiancés in the UK, but upon arrival, they'd be subject to this form of sub, uh, sexual abuse in order to check if they were virgins, to prove their eligibility for a visa. But this was not left unresisted. Organised by a South Asian women's collective, AWAS, and the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, OAD, a powerful picket took place at Heathrow Airport to protest these virginity tests as well as protests in India, which again shows global solidarity and practice. And the practice of virginity testing was eventually stopped, but it's important to recall this history of state-sanctioned sexual abuse and see its legacies. And if you were at the earlier pro uh, panel, we heard about the outrage following revelations about the strip searching of Charles Q, another form of state-sanctioned sexual abuse, but this time at a school in Hackney. So it's also important to remember that such violence will always be resisted on the ground. And one of the unifying slogans of the black feminist movement was many voices, one chant. And I think this can teach us a lot in the present day. We come with a multiplicity of voices and experiences, but together we can move in the same direction. And it's important to amplify such voices. And this is where the work of radical new media platforms are so important. And at the IRR, we um, have a platform called IRR News, which is an alternative media source where we publish analysis, interviews, and also a calendar of racism and resistance, which documents structural racism across, across Europe. But also podcasts play a huge role in this as well. And this is where I'm really excited to hear from Chantal Lewis from Surviving Society, who will talk more about this. Thank you so much, Sophia. Um, yes, maybe we can move on to Chantelle, and Chantelle okay. can tell us a bit about new knowledge production around anti-racism. I can't believe I've got a follow both of like, that was incredible, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, like, that was amazing, thank you so much, this is Zia. Um, okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about surviving society, but I'm going to try and locate it within the politics of the things we're talking about now, and that being um, anti-racist solidarities, but in particular thinking about knowledge production. And even though I'm gonna talk about knowledge production now, and what I mean by that is us creating spaces where we learn from each other um, through our differences, through our similarities, but also locating struggles in history. So knowledge production being um, scholarship, basically, writing, reading, trying to bring the academy with outside, out, going beyond the academy. So, sorry, by the way, I did a panel just now um, on Child Q, and it was really, it was, ama it was such an amazing um, panel, it was such a great, great space, but it's taken out of me a little bit, and I have, I'm quite, um, I've got quite high function ADHD, so I, I need to just like settle my brain a little bit. So if I do um, stall a little bit, just give me a minute. So, Surviving Society. So we started Surviving Society um, because we wanted to talk a little bit about our PhD research um, as scholars and we also wanted to talk about the media and we saw that what we were learning in sociology, in politics, at university, that we could apply some of our theory, what people have done in the past, obviously at IRR, to what was happening. And the key things that were happening at the time, in 2017, we, we had the Grenfell Tower fire, we had Brexit, we had 
years of seven years of coalition government and it's not to say that anything we were doing anything that we were doing as in talking together as scholars about society and the media was revolutionary but it was more about sort of talking together learning together with broad coalitions of people that agree on most things but that actually sometimes disagree on some of the particulars of how we get to imagining a, a future where we're all much more free than we are now so it wasn't necessarily, I don't think, anything revolutionary, but it was a space of learning together that was not necessarily using academic language or quote-unquote big words to talk about politics. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, defending intellectualism, even though I've just said that um, in a minute. But um, I think that one of the, thing, one of the, one of the reasons why um, Surviving Society, I think, has been... Has, has garnered a lot of listeners and we're so we're so proud and pleased that that's happened is because of it exists within the broad, a broad coalition of existing works that have been produced outside of the academy so the issue that we have now with outputs like surviving society is they get positioned as something that that's unique or that's original but if you listen to what me and Tito actually talk about on the show it's very much centred around de-individualising our projects and scholarship, even though we have to lean into the marketing principles of doing podcasting. Um, if anything that I'm saying doesn't, doesn't make sense or I'm being a bit jargony, please, when we come to the questions, ask me what I mean by this. But basically, what we've had is a, an academic podcast that has managed to be quote-unquote successful, um, but that also sometimes gets misused as something that I think we're, we're quite prone to doing on the left in terms of idealising certain ways of, certain scholars, certain ways of doing things. Um, and, and I'm very resistant to that, but also want to make sure that people get the knowledge and scholarship and understandings um, that we produce in the academy outside of that. So it's very much, it's very much a, a project of becoming. It's very much a project that is... Um, something that plays into some of the neoliberal logics that I think are a problem on the left that we need to keep resisting. Um, but, yeah, so, so I think that individualism, as Liz was saying, is something that, unfortunately, even though our politics says it shouldn't be that on the left, is something that continues to play for the left. And what I have to do as my very, very tiny, tiny role in um, producing knowledge production in a digital format is keep saying yes thank you for supporting what we're doing but it exists within so many different other um, means of producing knowledge and democratizing information and actually it's a very very small cog in um, movement building in terms for, for liberation and what I mean by that is you can't knowledge production doesn't replace direct action knowledge production doesn't replace being sat in a room, knowledge production doesn't be, replace being on the picket. It certainly helps it and supports it, but we have to just keep resisting. Even though something looks shiny and we have a nice logo and all that stuff, and we need that to get people engaged with the product, we need to keep resisting the politics around marketing products that are helping us get more information out there. Um, because the reality is, like, if you look at Liz spoke about the rise of the far right in Europe. If you look at like their digital resources, like these are some of the biggest podcasts in the world now, and they are literally funded by billionaires, and they are producing extremely hateful, transphobic, racist, misogynistic content. And essentially, the way we market to survive in society, although we're not funded by the far right or anything like that, we're sometimes using similar principles to these these podcasts as well. And it's like 
actually like what what can how can we make our projects of continuing um, knowledge production that is outside of the academy democratizing information different to that of the far right how can we make it different and that is by saying look what we do is this but go to these people look at this look at this other podcast Let, let's train someone else to um, produce this work let's talk to other organizations bring people in like we have to keep resisting individualism on the left and I, I'm so I'm sympathetic to it because we are struggling right now Plague Island is real like we are struggling on the left we don't have many people to look up to so it means when you do see like these little like things like things like surviving society when you do see things like this that do inspire you it is it's easy to position it as a beacon and really what I want want it to be positioned as is a very small contribution to the wider politics of anti-racist solidarity so I'm so grateful for people coming up to us even today being like thanks for what you're doing it's like no it's part of it's part of everyone it's part of everything that we're trying to do together and I think that yeah these are there's, there's, there's lots and we're all, we're, all, we're all human beings but I do think on the left when we're struggling in times of struggle when there's little hope we, we have to make sure that we're constantly de-individualising we're constantly making sure that we're resisting um, celebrity culture and I think I know one more thing I'm going to say is that we are very much located in being a black radical podcast and, a, and one that is embedded in black scholarship and black radical thinking and part of that has been because of the systemic exclusion of black scholars within the academy and outside of the academy and being taken seriously. So there are some aspects of us leaning into the fact that actually we are reclaiming some spaces, but that is an important part. And I think this comes back to thinking about struggles and solidarities and resistances within our movement. So even though I'm very much, my politics is about anti-racist solidarity, we do have to, and we talk about this on the, on the show a lot, talk about the exclusion of black scholars within these, in these spaces. Talk about it, do something about it, then build together, I think is really important. Because to say that our exclusion is something that isn't of material reality is simply untrue. And I think that sometimes for people like myself and others that I know are in the room, particularly as black women, we want to create those bridges but we're constantly having to speak to our people and be like, no, honestly, they do care about us. I know sometimes they say this and like this, I don't always include us in this, but they do care. They do like, actually, if there was a politics of recognition of difference that is meaningful and politically engaged and engaged in the, the lived experiences as a starting point and moving on from that, then I think that we can get to that space of anti-racist solidarities that are a bit more that are generative, that are realistic, but that also take seriously why some people have issues with some of the some of the politics that happen within these movements. I'm happy to talk more about that, but equally, I think as I'm on this panel, it's very clear what my politics are, but I'm also very sympathetic to some of the issues that we've had within our um, broad coalitions. But I'm not, I'm in no way not, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I'm very much in a place of optimism, as, as Liz just said. I think there's so many incredible things that are happening right now. It's so amazing being in this space, like seeing people and hearing um, about all these different collectives. I'm so privileged that um, we get to produce Surviving Society together and to bring these people on the show to inspire us and to inspire the listeners. Um, so yeah, even though there's been sort of some critiques of the left um, in my talk, um, I am very much, I am very optimistic, um, but there is a lot of work to go, a lot of work to do, but I think, I think we're on the right, on the right road. Thank you so much, Thank you.
Um, I'm going to just ask uh, uh, the panel uh, a number of individual questions and then we will open it up to a Q&A for the audience. Um, Liz, if I can start with you. Um, you, you touch upon the importance of a true internationalism. Um, how can anti-racist struggles practically work together across borders in an era of rising nationalism? So, how can anti-racist struggles learn from each other and inform each other's work across borders? doing it I mean I think um, I think on a European level they're already doing it um, I mean there's so many networks you know no borders um, you know even the you know the NGO world they're all working together across borders I think that also there is a lot of understanding of the similarities between what's happening in the US and Central America and what's happening um, in other parts of the world, in Africa, in Israel. So I think it's already happening, but I think the second part of your question is actually the, the more difficult question in terms of the rising nationalism, because I think I've seen here in a way in a way since Brexit, in a funny sort of way, that we're becoming more inward looking and we're becoming less aware of what's happening in even other European countries. And I mean, in the sort of first presentation, I talked about the dangers of Eurocentrism. And actually, I didn't actually want to talk about the Russian aggression in Ukraine but one thing that has struck me from the start of this war is that most of us didn't know anything about Ukraine. We weren't aware that there was already a war taking place in the Ukraine before the war started. And in a sense, that has been part of our Eurocentrism as well, in the sense that Europe has always been Western Europe and Northern Europe. And I think that all these tendencies for us to not understand not just what's happening in other parts of the world which are Europe but actually not understand what is happening in Europe and actually not understanding the dangers of the nationalism in Central Europe and Eastern Europe as well um, so that because we're facing Russian aggression and Russian imperialism, undoubtedly. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be aware that there are very dangerous nationalisms in the Baltic states, in Poland, which are actually exploiting this crisis for their own rebirth and renaissance. And we've got to catch up really, really quickly. Because I'll tell you one thing, the Conservative Party, why are we giving how many billions of pounds of of uh, aid to the Ukraine for arms. Do you think Liz Truss and Boris Johnson are giving it because they're anti-fascist? I don't think so. But the Conservatives were sitting in the European Parliament 
with, they left the main conservative group in the European Parliament and were sitting with the nationalists from the Baltic states and from Poland. And this, uh, there is a very, very dangerous nationalism there that is going to impact on Eurocentrism in, in, a, in a very worrying way. So the second part of your question, I think, is the real challenge to us. The border activism is already happening, but the fact is that we do not understand the various nationalisms of Europe well enough at the moment. God, it took me a long time to Fantastic. I wanted to move on to Sophia. Sophia, you talk a lot about the overlap between feminist struggle and anti-racist struggle and the LGBTQ struggle. You've also written in Race and Class around the kind of essential work that migrant women do in terms of care, which may limit their capacity to be on the front line of these struggles at a time when their rights as citizens are being taken away from the state. How does one balance the idea of essentially being a target for the state and having to live your lives day to day, whilst also um, kind of having to do uh, yeah, essential work at a time where you're being marginalised as a citizen and a worker? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, like a really central part of my work is looking at the struggles of migrant workers, particularly migrant women who are doing the care work that keeps societies running at the same time while being constantly excluded um, from society and pushed to the margins of society. But in answer to your question, I'd say that I think migrant women are at the, the centre of struggle, um, particularly domestic workers who um, are some of the most invisibilised people um, who often don't have any rights because they work in a private home, which is spaces without rights, which is something that the PPT Permanent People's Tribunal drew, drew attention to. Um, and despite the fact that they're living in such a precarious situation, they're on the front lines campaigning for their rights and also like the rights of all migrant workers as a whole. Um, and I, I draw like endless inspiration from their struggles because they're in some of the most precarious positions. In, in building that, in, in terms of, of one's activism and one's experience. I know that, um, that Chantel, you're invested in creating kind of new um, areas of knowledge production. But there are also risks, I suppose, in the democratization of, of knowledge. And we talked earlier about this, you know, it's not just uh, broad progressive movements that benefit from from knowledge being spread around. It's also a kind of boon on the far right. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you can outline some of those, uh, you know, risks about uh, knowledge production being democratized. Yeah, I think, um, I think in answering this question, I definitely draw inspiration from Bell Hooks, who actually went on 70 yesterday. Um, in the, as in the defense of intellectualism and in the defense of facts and knowledge. And what Bell Hooks, I think, was implying here or talking about, in particular concerning the academy and um, scholarship, is that we, 
we don't want to take ourselves too seriously as scholars, but we also do want to take ourselves seriously in terms of the research and content and knowledge production that we generate, because it's not just based on anecdotal reflections, it's based on rigour, it's based on yeah things that are, that are not just how we feel about a situation, even though how we feel about a situation definitely can inform how we see our, how we see our uh, political position in society. All this being said, it, it is such an exciting time um, in terms of the access that we have um, as individuals to get more um, learning resources when it comes to thinking about anti-racism, for example. When it thinks comes to thinking about what we teach in the academy or what lecturers teach in the academy is so much more accessible now, more so than ever. However, we also, as I was talking about earlier, have a situation where different forms of knowledge production that are engineered to create division, that are embedded in hate, that are embedded in transphobia, that are embedded in racism, are highly, highly linked to capitalism. Obviously, what I mean by that is that there is so much money in producing hateful content now. And that, what that means is we're getting even more forms of knowledge production that are not embedded in um, thinking about um, emancipatory futures. They're embedded in intensifying, no, intensifying feelings of exclusion. And what I mean by that is thinking about... Um, the, the manosphere, thinking about how easy or how democratised an idea, the idea of the man um, being one of the, be, being the person that's being excluded and the most from society right now. There's so much money behind the, the, these types of knowledge production that are embedded in hate that are funded. So I think that the risk is, and then at the same time, we also have people that are not necessarily um, thinking about, um, not necessarily thinking about reproducing hateful content, but are simply feeling very disenfranchised and alienated by their material conditions. And what we have seen, um, and it's a multi-ethnic, multi-class issue, I, I mean, I can't believe how many middle-class white people I've seen turn to conspiracy theorists now. These mum and that people are mad. Anyway, right, what I mean by that is that, like, there is, there, particularly in the last few years, like, the conspiracy, conspiracy theories, like it's, it is such an issue, like particularly, like uh, particularly of those of those people that are literally have nothing, and I can I can totally sympathise and empathise with why that is happening because we are in a situation where those in power are are able to harness actually, like we've got people like Boris Johnson when he was in office, like utilising these like utilising threads of conspiracy <coughs> to divide people and to create, yeah, an, a, a society where I'm sat with like uncles and aunties and I've got to talk to them about how they feel about a situation being much more important than those in power controlling um, the means of production, controlling what we, what we have as a people, controlling our material conditions. Like, anecdotal reflections are really important, I think. I don't want to take that away, and they're how we create generative conversations, they're how we create understanding, they're how we bridge lines between difference and, sim difference and similarities, but they can only be the starting point. We have to defend intellectualism, we have to defend facts, we have to defend knowledge, and I think, I think Liz is right as well. Liz is talking about the kind of like 
Brexit moment has been a moment of us turning inwardly on each other. And I know it's been said time and time again, particularly in these particular spaces, when Michael Gove said uh, people are tired of experts. Like, we can't underestimate as a people, particularly on the left, how much that has infiltrated mm. those that we're in community with. And, um, and it's a, such a difficult conversation to have um, because I'm still trying to work out what it looks like. Um, and it's harder to look to understand what it looks like to understand why that's happening because we are in a dire, dire situation in terms of, yeah, our material conditions. As Khadija said earlier to me, the war on the poor. Like, it is, it is such a difficult situation, I think. Um, but ultimately, I, I'm comforted by the democratisation of knowledge and the accessibility that we all have to resources that can help us understand our material conditions. But I <coughs> remain concerned of how it is misused or funded by, yeah, right. <laughs> If I could just add something to what Chantal has said, as somebody who was active in the early 1980s, and you made the point that we mustn't romanticise that period, I think we did have very strong organisation. Um, we did have a, a concept of collectivity. Um, there was individualism, undoubtedly, but there was also a suppression of the individual and the individual conscience. I think, you know, some of us who are older will say, you know, there, I mean, we talk about it at the office with Sophia. I mean, you just thought you get up in the morning, you go to the struggle and you go to bed at night and that was your life, you know. Um, occasionally you do the washing up. But, you know, there, there was a sacrifice of the individual. And what I like about the organisational modes today is the caring that people give to each other. And it's, you know, I mean, I, I have a daughter who's, you know, a little bit younger than Sophia, but she's just grown up in a much more different culture at school where people really do care about each other. And that, that we see in our organisational models today, but it's not seen in social media. And I think that if we are abolitionists, We've got to say that social media has become a very punitive place for the individual. That people are punished for making mistakes. The sense that they can be educated and they can learn, they can make a mistake, but you know, you can learn. You don't have to be, you know, cancelled, um, to, to use a, you know, a word that is often banded around perhaps too much. But, you know, we've got to stop social media as a place of punishment of the individual and really grab its vital, vital capacity it gives us as an organisational source. What we've heard from, from all of your responses is the importance of learning from history, adapting anti-racist struggles. My question, and anyone can answer this, is how does one adapt our anti-racist struggles when those at the front line are considered threats to the nation by the state, by the media. So these are people holding up police work by doing anti-raids work. People who are, you know, outsiders, migrants coming in. Even LGBTQ people who are seen as a threat to the kind of moral fibre of the nation. How does one 
ensure that those at the front line are not taken in by state and media narrative and kind of suppressed in their essential anti-racist work? Um, yeah, I think that's like such an urgent question to take on right now. Um, and I would say for me, especially seeing mobilizations around Kill the Bill, like in the past year, have been really inspiring. And I think that's shown what coalitional work looks like on a practical level. Because um, the thing is about that police bill, it targets so many of us. It targets protesters, climate activists, feminists, um, BLM protesters, Gypsy Roma travelers. It literally targets like everyone. Um, and in a weird way, that's kind of brought people together in solidarity to resist it. Um, so I think it's really important in terms of learning, the, learning from the past and responding in the present day, um, building on these moments of solidarity where we can see that our struggles are shared. Um, something might affect some of us more than other people, but then that's still a reason for us all to be coming together. Um, and I've also been really inspired by, as you mentioned, the anti-raids work. Um, and here we can really see like, the power of social media of bringing people together on the ground. Because what we were seeing is that people would send out a tweet that there's an immigration raid going on, whether that's in Dalston or Peckham or Manchester in Glasgow. And what happened is that you know so many people in the community were galvanized. People who weren't necessarily political before were coming out and saying, no, you're not going to deport my neighbor. And I think that's <coughs> so incredibly powerful and we need to build on that. And then the final point I wanted to make was around um, what you all mentioned before, which is that we're not necessarily born an anti-racist or an abolitionist. We don't just you know, come out and have these politics. It's a process of becoming, it's a process of learning, it can be a process of unlearning as well. And I think we need you know, patience with each other and a willingness to learn from each other and learn with each other. And I think that's, the, that's why political education is so important. And when I look back at archives, I see that that work was always so important. It wasn't just you know, going straight ahead and fighting the state, but it was actually coming together, reading together, you know, struggling together, asking those difficult questions. Um, and actually that's the basis of learning together and then going on to fight um, on the streets against the state. some government this so I don't like I, I don't even know I don't really have an answer to this like they're gonna be coming for all of us um is it is it Apple Hirsch got banned from the House of Lords recently I don't really have an answer to the I, I think that yeah if you're doing anti-racist work publicly if you're being a publicly critical scholar then yeah you're on the list that's, that's, that's it. And Liz, how, how does that link with, with the, the way that the new right framed things in like the 1980s, that trade unionists were holding up the nation's productivity and you know, left, lefty councils were polluting the minds of young people? Oh, there's nothing new on the new right. <laughs> no, there's nothing new. I mean, all the anti-woke stuff is a, a regurgitation of the campaign, the new right campaigns in the 1980s. I mean, the institute um, was when some sail over there, I believe, on that stall. <laughs> you may be able to get a hold of a copy of a cartoon book if there are any left, which was actually double page spread in the Daily Mail, um, saying that 
the Broadwater Farm riot started because the kids were, you know, reading this cartoon book and they just decided to, to go out and riot against the police. So we all through went back through that in the 1980s. So, you know, just as I said, you know, we survived it. So it can be survived over again. The question I thought you were going to ask is, is how does the, did the IRR survive? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I like this one. Yeah, I thought you can ask me about how to mix that, and it's a really, really important question because, you know, I don't like to call ourselves an NGO. I've never sort of saw 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 it like that. Partly because when you know when I started working there, you know, you got up at five o'clock in the morning and you got home at twelve o'clock, and you know what I mean. It was you you thought you were part of a political movement. You you thought you know that was that was your life. That's how you decided to live your life. But the point is that too many groups who are funded, and we are funded, we are lucky to be funded, but we don't take money from the state, and we are looking for, for extra help this year with our funds. But too many of the groups that are funded fall into the trap of being scared and censoring themselves. So you've got to be, you're always, you know, you've got to be on the thief always, you say, you've got to be on tiptoes of your sensibilities, you know, we were running home on tiptoes of our sensibilities, because, you, you know, you've got to be responsible as well. You want to carry on this organisation for 50 years. You can't be adventurous or you'll be closed down, but you can't censor yourself. So that is the nature of the, you know, the burden of continuation, because we survived 50 years, we have got an archive, we've got those materials that Sophia and other people who want to learn from the past can, can take. But, you know, if you're going to just be, you know, put everything flat out, you're not going to survive. I, th I think conversations like we've had today and conversations that are wider at TWT are really, really important that we do this in person and we do this continuously. And I know both the Institute of Race Relations and the World Transformed are doing fundraisers. You can donate money to them online. There are card readers at the door. But it's so important that these institutions have longevity, that these aren't flash in the pan, get some money in fold when it becomes economically unviable. The Institute's been around for 50 years. I've been reading the Institute's work for 25 years. It's important that that continues another half century and longer and beyond. And a similar thing with the World Transformed. It was wonderful to be here in year one, and it's wonderful to be here in 2022. So I hope to see you all over the coming years and the coming struggle. I'd love to thank the wonderful panel, Liz Fichetti, Sophia Siddiqui, and Chantel Lewis, Big round of applause. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 